0: weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a Savior, Emmanuel Church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus, Friend of Sinners. Now here's this week's message.
1: We turn now to a time of the preaching of God's Word. As you uh, begin listening to the sermon, I want to ask a question for you to answer in your own mind and heart. As you sit there today, as you enter into our church service today, I wonder what do you perceive to be your greatest need today? What do you perceive to be the need in your life of greatest importance? You think you can answer that? You can whittle it down to one thing. Nailing that down, I wonder who do you look to to meet that need? Where do you go to find someone to meet that need that is on your heart and on your mind? What are the qualifications that such a person needs to accomplish the purpose of helping you meet your greatest need. Is that need financial? Are you looking for someone that can help you with your finances, help you with your budget, help you with your investments, help you with your portfolio, help you with your retirement? Does it need to be someone who has a background of education and finance or a track record of no losses and lots of gains over a period of years in terms of good and wise investments? Do you think your primary need is a need of health, need of physical strength, physical fitness? I wonder who do you look to to meet that need? Is it a doctor, a doctor with a medical degree, a doctor with a good residency and a history of faithful experience and healing those that come to him or her? Do you think of your greatest need as educational? Are you looking for a degree program, a a professor, someone who has a a PhD, who has an expertise in the area that you want to learn in so that you can have that career, so that you can make that money, so that you can have a, a successful life? I wonder what do you think is your greatest need and who do you look to to meet that need and what qualifications do you think that that person needs to accomplish that purpose? Well, in our passage today, the Apostle Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples, is trotting out for us who Jesus is. He's laying out for us his qualifications to be the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world. And as we study this passage today, I hope that we will see what is our greatest need, And that we would look to Jesus to be the one, the only one who can meet that need and understand how he is uniquely qualified to meet our greatest need. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, where we are going to be looking at the second half of Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. We as a church, as a manual church, believe in expositional preaching. We believe that God's word is true and without error and is sufficient for all that we need um, to accomplish God's purposes. And we believe that God's word is powerful to accomplish his purposes among us. And so it is our heart to put God's word in the driver's seat of our church. And the way that we do that is by working through books of the Bible and working our way through the entire Bible, seeking to, as Paul t- told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, preach the whole counsel of God the whole council of God. The way that we do this is by preaching through different books of the Bible. So from the time that we started planting Emmanuel Church, we have spent the last year, most of our time in the book of 1 Corinthians. We have gotten through the first 10 chapters of 1 Corinthians. We hope to jump back into 1 Corinthians in September. But we put a pause this summer to spend three weeks in Jonah in the Old Testament minor prophets and three weeks in Habakkuk, which we finished last week. And last Advent season, in December of 2022, we looked at the first chapter and the first half of the second chapter of Matthew in three sermons, considering the birth of Christ from Matthew's gospel. So we're going to take a few weeks to get through the end of two, chapter three, and the first part of chapter four of Matthew, so that the next time we come to Matthew, we can study the Sermon on the Mount, which is chapters five to seven. And we're going to try to get through the book of Matthew, which is 28 chapters, not all at once, but uh, we're going we're gonna to study it through chunks, a chunk of chapters at a time. But We believe that by working our way through the different parts of Scripture, focusing on, on what God's Word says, and making the main point of each passage the main point of our sermon, we believe that God will be the one who sets the agenda in our church we can be sure that God is the one who speaks to us we don't use God's Word to say what we want God to say that we actually hear his voice and hear from him let's pray that the Lord does that for us even today this afternoon well we are in Matthew chapter 2 Matthew is one of four Gospels it's one of the genres of Scripture the Gospels are narratives of the life and ministry of Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, God become man, Jesus. And these are these four Gospels, four eyewitness biographical accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus. These Gospel accounts have been called Gospels because the titles given to them were titles in Greek that said the Gospel, Evangelion, which means good news, according to whoever it is that wrote that book. So the title in Greek of each of these books is the name of the writer. So the title of Matthew is the Gospel. According to Matthew, the Gospel of Mark is the Gospel according to Mark. The Gospel according to Luke is the third, and the Gospel according to John is the fourth. They have then come to be called Gospels not because there's more than one gospel but because these are perceived to be the kind of writings that they are uh, the the gospel message of Jesus written in these eyewitness biographical accounts now the the Gospels the four Gospels are four different perspectives that are all true and are all interlocking and interconnected in their truthfulness but are presenting the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, through unique perspectives but each one gives a special emphasis on Jesus death and resurrection I've been reading of uh, biographies I am currently reading uh, a set of volumes what hopefully will become a five-volume set of the life of Lyndon Johnson one of our American presidents I just finished the first volume The author spends literally hundreds of pages on Lyndon Johnson's ancestors from many generations back and then many hundreds of pages on his childhood from his earliest days. In order to understand what Lyndon Johnson was like as a president, it's helpful to understand what he was like as a child. Different from Robert Caro, who is writing the volumes of biography of Lyndon Johnson, the Gospel writers don't do this. Only Matthew and Luke spend any time on Jesus' infancy or on his birth. The other two jump right into his ministry. They actually begin their Gospels, though John has a short introduction, they begin their Gospels when Jesus is uh, over 30 years old. They jump right into his ministry. They skip the first 30 years of his life with a focus on his public ministry and then a specific special focus on the last week of his life and an emphasis on his death and resurrection. Why is this? Well, because this is why Jesus came. While he did live 30 years that we know very little about, the reason Jesus came was to do a very specific ministry ministry of preaching the gospel, healing the sick, demonstrating his authority, proclaiming who he was as the Messiah of Israel, but then laying down his life as the sacrifice for sinners that he was called to be, and then with power being raised on the third day to demonstrate his power over sin and death, and then to be ascended to heaven where he reigns now. These gospels focus in specifically on Jesus' ministry. But here in Matthew, we have one of the very few sections where we see a glimpse into Jesus' infancy. Uh, if you want to go back and listen to those sermons, I think they're on our Spotify account. I think you can listen to them. Matthew 1, the first half of Matthew 1, you have the genealogy of Jesus. Demonstrating that Jesus is a descendant of Abraham and a descendant of David. He is the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. The one who has the qualifications to be David's greater son. The one who would rule on David's throne forever. Second half of chapter 1, we have the angel coming and uh, presenting to Joseph that the baby in his betrothed wife's stomach is the incarnate Son of God. This is a man, Jesus, who is God as well, who became flesh and took upon himself our humanity. And Joseph embraces this child as his own in adoption. And it is through Joseph that Jesus has the qualifications to be this Messiah of Israel. In the first half of Matthew 2, the last section that we looked at back in December, we have the visit of the Magi. These foreign soothsayers and astrologers who read the stars and who came seeking the king of the Jews that the Jews had not recognized. And these foreign Gentile magi come and worship Jesus, demonstrating, Matthew shows, that Jesus had come not only to be the Messiah of Israel, but the Savior of the world, the one to be worshipped by one and all. Well now here in chapter two, the end of chapter two, we have three little vignettes of three more things that happen in the life of the infant Jesus. And with each of them, Matthew follows them up with a quotation from the Old Testament showing how Jesus is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. And as we look at our section here, this second half of chapter two, here's our main point. After all of those introductions. Our main point is this. Jesus is qualified to be the Messiah of Israel and to be the Savior of the world. Jesus is qualified to be the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world. So let's look first at Matthew chapter 2, the first section there, beginning in verse 13. We're going to read 13 to 15. This is our first point, and this is God's word. After they were gone, that is, the Magi, an angel of the Lord, appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled out of Egypt, I called my son. Here we have again, God showing up miraculously, and God showing up and speaking to protect this child that had been sent. And we have here, The angel intervening through a dream to tell Joseph to flee to Egypt because Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. Here we have a miraculous intervention in the life of Jesus. This is proof, again, of who this Jesus is. Angels are being sent by God to protect this child Jesus. You're going to hear more about what Herod does in the next section. But here in this first section, Matthew simply records that Joseph got up in verse 14, that he took the child and his mother during the night and escaped to Egypt. And in a sentence, we hear what it is that happened with Jesus. He was transported by his adopted father, Joseph, And his mother to Egypt to sojourn in order to be safe in Egypt, the place where his ancestors, through his mother uh, Mary, had spent 400 years in captivity. Now notice how careful Matthew is throughout these first two chapters to make it clear that Jesus is not merely human, but that he is divine. You see the way that he describes the child each time. Look at how the angel says it in verse 13, get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt. The angel's making it clear, Joseph is not the father. Joseph is the adopted father, but uh, Mary is the mother. This baby was uh, put into her, placed into her by the Holy Spirit in order that this a uh, singular person, the person of Jesus, would be both God himself and human uh, in the person of Jesus. And so Joseph takes responsibility for this child and takes the child to Egypt. Now we have something very interesting in verse 15. We have Matthew finding a fulfillment of Scripture in an unlikely place. It says, verse 15, that he, that is, Joseph, stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, out of Egypt I called my son. Now I remember in Bible college, struggling with verses like this, to understand how is Matthew using good hermeneutics to interpret the Old Testament, when a passage like this, as Jonathan so clearly explained, Hosea 11 verse one, is a verse that's talking not about Jesus, But about Israel? Hosea 11 verse 1 is a description of what God did with the nation of Israel, and Israel is described as the Son of God. This is a a way that you see throughout the Old Testament, nations being described in the singular. We saw this in Habakkuk. In chapters 1 and 2, Chaldea and Babylon was described as a he throughout that book, viewing a nation as an individual. Well, here Israel, the whole nation of Israel, is called God's son. And he describes what God did do in the Exodus as, out of Egypt I called my son. So how is Moses understanding the Old Testament and seeing this as a prophecy that is fulfilled in Jesus? Well, Matthew isn't playing fast and loose with scripture. I remember hearing one professor tell me, well, the apostles can do what they want when they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, but don't you use scripture this way. And I remember thinking, "Uh, that that doesn't sit right with me, because if they're understanding this by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they must be seeing something that I don't see in the way that they read their Bibles. And what is it that Matthew is seeing as a man inspired by the Holy Spirit interpreting his Old Testament and understanding Hosea 11.1 as in some way pointing to Jesus. Well, he's doing simply what Jesus taught his people to do. I don't know if you remember the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. But Jesus there, on the day of his resurrection, meets two disciples who are traveling the road to Emmaus. And he he comes alongside them on the road, and they don't recognize him, and he engages them in conversation, asking them what they're talking about. And they tell him, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, was killed three days ago. And there are reports that he was raised from the dead. Jesus then teaches them. It says in Luke 24, verses 25 and following, that Jesus said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. That's a profound statement. Jesus is making a profound statement that is not humble and should not be humble. There's no humility in a statement saying, all of God's word is about me. And Jesus is the only one qualified to say such a thing. He is the only one who is qualified, as in Revelation, to open the scroll of history as the one who is God himself, sovereign over all, and yet also the one who became a man to save sinners. What Jesus said about the Old Testament is that, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, everything in the scriptures is concerning him. What that means is when we read our Old Testament scriptures, we need to see in everything that we read there pointers towards Christ. That means from the very beginning pages, From Genesis chapter 3, the very account in which mankind fell through sinning and rebelling against God, there is a promise there of the seed of the woman who would come, the one who would crush the head of the snake, but who would also have his heel bruised. There is, from the beginning of the Old Testament all the way through, pointers to Christ, whether it's specific prophecies like what the... Magi heard when they came to the palace and heard from the the scribes there in Jerusalem that this one is to be born in Bethlehem, whether it's specific prophecies like that, or whether it's more general trajectories of Scripture, more general patterns of faithfulness that point to what Jesus would be like, or patterns of unfaithfulness that point to the opposite of what Jesus would be like. All of the Old Testament points to him. What Matthew sees here in the escape of Joseph and Mary and the baby to Egypt, what he sees here is a significance that Jesus is the true son of Abraham. The true faithful son of God who would be faithful every place that Israel was unfaithful. That's point number one, the faithful son. In our first section here, Matthew is holding out Jesus as the faithful son. He's qualified as Matthew writes in Matthew 1, verse 1, to be the son of Abraham, and as the son of Abraham, he is a descendant of Abraham who can be the seed of Abraham who was promised to be the one, Genesis 12, through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. But not only is he Abraham's faithful son, the seed of Abraham as Apostle Paul calls him in the book of Galatians, he is also... true Israel itself. And in Jesus life, even in Jesus travels as an infant, he is walking the path that Israel took in order to be in the days ahead faithful in every place that Israel was unfaithful. Matthew develops this theme throughout his book. That Jesus is the faithful son The next time we visit Matthew in a couple weeks in Matthew chapter 3, God actually says this at his baptism, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. But he's then going to go into the wilderness and for 40 days he's going to be tempted in the wilderness and every time that he is tempted rather than failing like Israel did, he's going to stand up under those temptations and he's going to endure them. He is going to be faithful every place that Israel failed. In this way, he will prove that he is qualified to be the Messiah of Israel. He is qualified as well to save Israel from our sin. Now, God is at work here protecting Jesus. He does it by taking him to Egypt and back. But he is walking the road that Israel took. He's walking... The road that Israel took and failed, and then had to spend 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus is walking this path with his parents, demonstrating that he is the faithful son, or as we might say it, faithless Israel's faithful son. As we think about this prophecy, Hosea 11, we see the contrast that. Matthew must have seen as he read Hosea 11, as it was read to us in our scripture passage. Israel was loved by God, and yet they kept rebelling against him. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, 11-1. And yet they kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the hand, but they never knew that I healed them. I led them with human cords, with ropes of love, And yet he says, verse 7, My people are bent on turning from me. Though they call to him on high, he will not exalt them at all. This is a heavy consideration. But it points not simply to the unfaithfulness of Israel, but to our own unfaithfulness too. And this prophecy... Jesus going to Egypt and coming back points us to Jesus' qualifications, his unique qualifications, to be the one to save sinners, to be the one to justify sinners. Now, friends, when we think about the justification that we receive from God, so often we think, first and foremost, about his death and resurrection. There's something good and right about this. When we think about how Jesus saves sinners, we think about our sin on the cross that must be paid for. That's what Jesus came to do. He was a baby born to die, to die to take the penalty of the sins that you and I deserve. But do you know that Jesus came to do something else too? He came not only to pay for our sins, but He also came to live the righteous life that we haven't lived. He came not only to pay for our past sins, but to live the perfect life, so that we would have not simply our sins paid for and then left needing to earn our salvation, but that we would be able to receive from Him full righteousness, a full record of righteousness that we never could have achieved. You see, friends, we have a twofold problem: the problem of our sin and debt that must be paid for and dealt with, so that a holy God may accept us. We need more than that. We need not simply to have our past sins paid for, to become like Adam and Eve, innocent and able to sin again. No, we need a full record of righteousness so that we may stand before God fully righteous, worthy of his acceptance. What Jesus has begun to do here in going to Egypt and back, he is beginning this path of faithfulness that would continue throughout his whole life. A life in which he would live a perfect life in the place of sinners. So often when we think about our problems, as we thought about in our introduction, we think that our biggest problems are problems outside of us. That our biggest problems are problems of our environment or of our situation. As one writer said it, so helpfully, We tend to think that our biggest problem are problems outside of us and that the solutions are inside of us. This is what so much of these self-help books that you'll find in Barnes and Noble will tell you, that the problem is a problem of environment, a problem of situation, a problem that is outside of you. You need to deal with that by looking within to find the strength and the help to solve your problems. And yet the Bible says that things are very different, that our biggest problem is not outside of us, but inside of us, the problem of our own sin problem of our own rebellion against God, our own disobedience towards him. And the solution is not inside of us. It's outside of us. It is alien to us an alien righteousness. You see, if we are to be able to one day enter God's presence and be welcomed and accepted, it's not going to happen based on what you have done or what I have done. It's not going to be based on your record of faithfulness. It's going to be based on the record of Jesus' faithfulness for sinners that is given through faith in him. And he must die on the cross in the place of sinners, as we'll see, hopefully, in the days ahead if Christ's return is delayed. We also need his perfect life of righteousness so that that righteousness might be imputed to us. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you know your only hope is not by doing better. It's not by simply Apologizing for the things that you've done in the past You tend to think That we need just a little bit of help, right? I'll get by with a little help from my friends. I'll get by with just a little help from God and Yet We need so much more we don't need some help to make up for the bit that we lack We don't realize how bad our situation is and this is why Jesus has come to be the faithful son that Israel never was and that you and I never could be and he came to do this in the place of sinners well this is point number one Jesus is the faithful son that gives him qualifications to be the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world Well, secondly not only is he the faithful son secondly he is the hope-giving King he's the hope-giving King In the next section, we have now Herod following through on his anger that he's been deceived by these magi who originally promised to come back and to tell him where the child was so that he could worship him, Herod said. And yet they're warned by angels in a dream to return back to their homes a different way. And so they do, verse 16. Then Herod, when he realized that he'd been outwitted by the wise man, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, but she refused to be consoled because they are no more. Here we have a wicked king using his power to dominate and to harm God's people. Here, Herod is threatened by the word that there may be a king born in fulfillment of prophecy who has the qualifications to be king that he doesn't have. And in his insecurity, in his fear, he acts to seek to get rid of any rivals. Now, history tells us that by this time in Herod's life, He was very insecure, he was very sick, and he was very paranoid. History tells us that he had killed his favorite wife, and he had killed at least two of his sons that he was convinced were a threat to his power. In fact, he was so known for killing any rival or potential rival that Caesar himself made a joke, a pun in Greek, that he would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. The idea was at least you'd have a chance to stay alive if you were Herod's pig. Uh, The word for pig and son were very similar. It was a joke that he made. He himself who was overseeing all of these uh, governors of Rome knew this about Herod. How does this wicked king respond to news that there could be a king with credentials and qualifications and Uh, the right to rule on his throne, well, he seeks to have him killed. He gives orders to kill all of the boys in and around Bethlehem. And we don't know how many boys he killed. Bethlehem was a small town. Some commentators project it may be as few as 10 or 12 or 15. But in the lives of those families, in the lives of those mothers and fathers, this was a devastating thing to have. every child two years and older killed and slaughtered now matthew sees a passage fulfilled in this act of slaughter by this wicked pagan king and he quotes jeremiah 31 see the quote there in verse 18 a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled, because they are no more. Now this passage, Jeremiah 30 and 31, is an interesting passage, because it's a passage describing both the exile, which we've spent some time in Habakkuk considering, the time of exile, in which God's people were going to be disciplined by God, punished for their wickedness and sins, and actually taken into captivity to Babylon. And in this passage, God has Rachel, the mother of two of the tribes of Israel, uh, being presented here, signifying the mother of Israel as a, a type of all of the mothers of Israel, weeping for her children as they are going off into exile. She is weeping that her children are gone. Some have been destroyed through the pillaging that happened when... Jerusalem was conquered, but many of them were then taken into captivity. He sees, that is Matthew sees, in this prophecy in Jeremiah, hints to what is continuing to happen in Jesus' day, pagan kings harming God's people. But what he sees in Jeremiah 30 and 31 is both a reference to the exile and to to this situation in which foreign kings are dominating God's people, he points to this passage in Jeremiah 30 and 31 because in those two chapters we actually have both a description of the exile and what would happen to Israel as well as notes of future hope. Hope of help that would come through David's greater son. If you want to turn back to Jeremiah 30 really quickly. Go back to chapter before this quote to Jeremiah 30. He says the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Write on a scroll all the words that I have spoken to you. For look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord. I will restore them to the land I gave to their ancestors and they will possess it. So he's promising a day of restoration coming. Look down at verse... Uh, uh, verse 8 talks about a time of trouble coming in which God's people would eventually be saved out of it, verse 7 on that day I will break his yoke from your neck and tear off your chains and strangers will never again enslave him, that is Israel his son, they will, verse 9 serve the Lord their God and David their king whom I will raise up for them See, Matthew, in referencing this passage, is referencing not simply that one verse in verse 31, but this whole section. What he's seeing in these cries of these mothers is the end of the exile that is now going to end through the coming of David, King David's greater son, the one who is descended from David, Jesus, who has the right to sit on his throne, who has the right to deliver Israel and to restore her to the land that God had promised, a restoration that as we'll see throughout the book of Matthew, will first be fulfilled spiritually through his establishment of redemption and the new covenant, and one day physically as well. He then says in chapter 31, that he would do this, and at that time, verse 31, Verse 20, I will truly have compassion on him. And this is the Lord's declaration. Now, how is God going to have compassion on Israel? Well, it's going to happen through the one, David's descendant, the one who has the right to sit on his throne, and he will then, chapter 31, verses 31 and following, make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. He will, at that time, make a new covenant, unlike. The old covenant that faithless Israel broke. Friends, we have here prophecy points forward to what Jesus has come to do, which is to restore the fortunes of Israel. And he's going to do this by establishing a new covenant with his people. And what Matthew is pointing to here by quoting Jeremiah 30 and 31, saying that Jesus is qualified to establish this covenant to restore his people. He is the one who, from the ashes of a broken dynasty, has come to rescue Israel. I've been watching Lord of the Rings with my kids. Aragorn, son of Arathorn, is this king who comes from the broken line of the kings of Gondor. Everyone thinks that that line is broken, and yet there is a descendant that no one knew was there. This is who Aragorn is, and he comes and is able to take the sword of his grandfather and to conquer the enemies of Gondor and to establish the kingdom of Gondor again, destroying all of his enemies. Jeremiah describes Jesus as the shoot that would come from the stump of Jesse the line of Israel's kings had been broken, that tree had been cut down, and there was going to be one who would come from that stone. Uh, I was at my father-in-law's house a couple of days ago. He was showing me his figs, which were just coming into season and ready to be picked, and he showed me one tree of figs that is now quite large, But it was a fig tree that had been cut down, and now all of these branches have been coming out from that stump that was still alive. And now we have figs coming off of this tree because of these branches that shot out from the stump of a tree that had been cut down. This is how Jesus is described as the hope-giving king of hopeless Israel. Jesus is the one who has come, the descendant of David, who has the right to... Restore Israel, and this is what he's come to do. Well, friends, how is he going to do this? How is he, the faithful son, and the hope-giving king, going to do this? Well, he's going to do it in a way that no one ever expected. Look at the third section of our passage. He's going to do it by being despised and rejected. Look at verse 19. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, because those who intended to kill the child are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and entered the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. And he went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Joseph, hearing that Herod is dead, returns to Israel. And it looks like in this passage what seems to be implied is that he was ready to go back to Bethlehem, the city of David, the place where David came from, the place of kings, the home of kings, the place of his uh, ancestors or perhaps even thought that he should take this child to Jerusalem, the place where kings ruled in the past. But as he heads toward Judea, he hears that Herod's wicked son Archelaus is actually ruling over that area, and then he's warned by an angel again not to go there. And so he withdraws to the region of Galilee where he and Mary were originally from, and they went and settled in a town called Nazareth. Now if you were Joseph, and you were told that your adopted son through a miraculous birth, is going to be the King of Israel, the Messiah of Israel, the one descended from Abraham and from David, and who would be the Messiah of Israel to rule on David's throne forever as it was promised, where would you think that this child should be raised? Should he be called Jesus of Bethlehem or Jesus of Jerusalem? Where would you seek to raise such a child? Where should such a child be raised? What kind of home or house should he live in? A palace, right? This is what the wise men thought. This is what the magi thought. That's why they went to the palace looking for him. They assumed that someone who comes from such a pedigree and who is come in fulfillment to prophecy would be found in an important place. Jerusalem. They find him in Bethlehem, the city of David. Where does Jesus end up? He ends up in Podunk, Nazareth. He ends up in Galilee in the north of Palestine. He ends up in a place full of blue-collar workers in the home of a carpenter surrounded by cousins that are fishermen. He grows up in a town called Nazareth. Why did he do this? Well it says to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Now this one's a little harder to nail down. The first two we can find pretty quickly in the Old Testament. And notice that the first two say the prophet, meaning there's a specific place in the prophets where one prophet said this. We can see that the first one is Hosea 11.1, the second one is Jeremiah 31.15. Where's this third one? Well, it says thirdly that this one is through the prophets plural. But that line is not found anywhere in the prophets. You will not find anything in the Old Testament that says that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. And there has been much ink spilt trying to figure out what does Matthew mean by this? Some have tried to connect it with the Nazarite vows, but it's clear that this has nothing to do with being a Nazarite like what Samson was, not able to shave his head, needing to avoid strong drink. No, this is that he would be called a Nazarene, that is, someone from the town of Nazareth. Well, it seems what Matthew is saying here is that Jesus, in the very town in which he would live and be from and be named by, is demonstrating that he is the suffering servant prophesied in the Old Testament, one who was humble one who is despised and one who would be rejected. We've already seen that Jesus was unrecognized by his own people. The the Magi, the wise men come and they say, where is this child born? And the scribes point to where he would be born, but they don't even go to see whether or not he's there. He's unrecognized by his own people and he would be then misunderstood by his own people. And he would be, even by the place he was going to be from, scorned and mocked. You remember in John chapter 1, when one of the disciples, Philip, finds out where the one supposedly, the Messiah, uh, had come from, that he was from Nazareth, that he says, could anything good come from Nazareth? And when he is being dismissed, the religious leaders say, does any prophet come from Nazareth? seems that what Matthew sees here, even in the place Jesus would be from, hints at the ministry that he would have. Jesus is qualified to be the faithful son that Israel never was. He's qualified to be the hope-giving king, King David's greater son. But how is he going to accomplish this? Is he going to accomplish it simply by riding on a horse, collecting an army, and trampling over the powers that be, conquering Rome? Well, not in this country. He had come to earth this time not to conquer through power and force and political uh, um, persuasion. He had come this time humbly to be despised and rejected, to be misunderstood and mocked, to be scorned, rejected, and to be as Isaiah puts it in Isaiah 53, acquainted with grief, he would be the suffering servant who would conquer, not with the power of armies, but who would conquer our greatest enemy, our enemies of sin and death, through laying down his life. D.A. Carson wrote this, thinking about our introduction. If God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death. And he sent us a savior. This is who Jesus is, and he is uniquely qualified to be the faithful son, to be the hope-giving king, and to be the suffering servant. We see even in his infancy travels, hints at at the Messiah and the Savior that he would be. Unrecognized by his own people, rejected by them, he would become the Savior of the world, gathering for himself a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And through his righteous life and his sacrificial death he would be uniquely qualified and uniquely able to save sinners so friends how do we apply a passage like this to our lives Well, we must understand first of all who this Jesus is we must embrace him as our only hope and our only Savior we must if you're here and you're not a Christian repent from ever being able To achieve your own salvation through your own works. You must reject not only your own sin through repentance. But even your attempts at saving yourself through your own righteousness. And you must cling to Christ and Christ only. Friends, our our salvation can only come through an alien righteousness being applied to us. And through a sacrificial death in our place. And this is what Jesus has come to do. To live that perfect life. To die on the cross in the place of sinners. So that... Sinners like you and me would have hope, not simply hope of a good life here and now, but an eternal hope of being reconciled to our creator God, our holy God, and being able to know that we are, through Christ, his beloved children, to be with him forever in blessed joy. Friends, how about for those of us who are Christians? How do we apply a passage like this? Well, I think all of us are going to be sliding into some kind of legalistic mindset the more we go through life. It seems to be hardwired in us. If we're to be living the lives that Jesus has called us to as his people, we need to work against that slide into legalism that all of us seem to have. I don't know if you've ever done canoeing. I grew up uh, in a, a youth group that did a lot of camping and backpacking, we even did some canoeing. And I remember having to canoe at times upstream on a a river. And if you just stayed where you were, you were gonna be going the wrong direction. You literally had to work twice as hard, because not only did you have to push the boat that direction, you had to fight against the river or the stream that was going in that direction. Well, friends, we have to do that when it comes to our own tendency towards legalism. All of us have a tendency to slide back into a mindset of thinking that we have to earn our favor with God. That it's going to come. If God's going to love us, if he's going to be happy with us, it's going to be based on what we do. We have to do better. We have to improve. If God's going to love us, we've got to do more. We've got to aim to do better. This can be found in our own attitudes of feeling more confident in our relationship with God based on the day that we had or based on how good that we did in our Christian life. It can also be found on the flip side with how devastated we get when we fail, when we sin, or when we are uh, able to see just how sinful we are when that mirror is shown to us. Friends, if you're... Here in your Christian members of Emmanuel Church, we need to be a kind of people that continue to rely not on our own works to save us or even to improve our standing with God, but to trust in what Christ has done for us as our only hope. And then to have the confidence that because it's Christ's record that gives us standing with God and not our own, we can have the confidence to simply seek to grow, to look more like Jesus with each passing day, delighted to look more like him through the power of the Holy Spirit, excited to see one another growing to look more like him, not to earn his favor ultimately, but to be more and more like our beloved Savior. C.H. Spurgeon put it so clearly, I'm just going to read him at the end of our time here because I couldn't say it better. This is this slide that all of us uh, have a tendency towards. C.H. Spurgeon, the British pastor of two centuries ago, said it. It is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from ourselves to Jesus ever the work of the holy spirit to turn our eyes away from ourselves to jesus but satan's work is just the opposite of this For he's constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of christ he insinuates your sins are too great for pardon you have no faith you do not repent enough you'll never be able to continue to the end you have not the joy of his children you have such a wavering hold of jesus All these are thoughts about self, and we shall never find comfort or assurance by looking within. But the Holy Spirit turns our eyes entirely away from self. He tells us that we are nothing, but that Christ is all in all. Remember, therefore, Spurgeon says, it is not thy hold of Christ that saves thee, it is Christ. It is not thy joy in Christ that saves thee, it is Christ. It is not even faith in Christ, though that be the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, look not so much to thy hand with which thou art grasping Christ as to Christ. Look not to thy hope, but to Christ, the source of thy hope. Look not to thy faith, but to Jesus, the author and finisher of thy faith. We shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers, at our works, or at our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. If we would at once overcome Satan and have peace with God, it must be by looking unto Jesus. Keep your eyes simply on him. Let his death, his sufferings, his merits, his glories, his intercession be fresh upon your mind. When you wake in the morning, look to him. When you lie us down at night, look to him. Oh, let not thy hopes or fears come between you and Jesus. Follow hard after him. He will never fail you. My hope is built on nothing less. In Jesus' blood and righteousness, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. The great theologian, Machen, J. H. Machen, was the president of Westminster Seminary as it was established in the early 1900s. The last thing that he wrote was a telegram to a friend. And that telegram said this, in the days of telegrams. I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. There is no hope without it. What does he mean by this? Well, in Jesus' active obedience, he faithfully obeyed all of the law's demands in our place, and in his passive obedience, going to the cross, he dealt with all of our past sin. We need both of these, friends. If we are ever to have a hope of standing before God confidently, that our sins are dealt with, and that we are righteous in Christ, it's not what we have done, but what Christ has done. friends. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you that he is uniquely qualified to be Israel's Messiah and the Savior of the world. Lord, thank you that we have hope only in him. Lord, we pray that you would help us to fix our hope only on him. And that then our hopes would be on Christ and being with him for all eternity. Lord, we pray that you would do this in our hearts and minds as only you can for our good and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.
0: Thank you for listening. We hope you were encouraged and blessed by the word. We'd like to invite you to join us for Sunday worship. If you would like to know our service time and further information, Please visit us online at www.EmmanuelOC.com. And so, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.